So, how many of you, is there anybody here, this is the first time you're hearing me? Okay. Um, how many of you, this isn't the first time you've heard me, but you haven't heard the last three weeks? Okay. So, um, it's going to be hard to give three weeks worth of context to the things that I'm going to say. So just be aware that you might get triggered. <laughs> Because I am actually triggering people strategically to try to provoke change that happens at a deep level. Um, it's one thing to change our mind sort of consciously, but how many of you know that when you're going through a change or transformation process that you have a lot of other parts of you that are not convinced <laughs> when you begin the journey, right? And one of the things I've found in my own life and in doing this and helping people, being in the helping people, whatever, service of people for almost all my life, um, is that when you can make change at deeper levels, emotional levels, subconscious levels, then uh, the change that you experience becomes multiplied. So in other words, if you change a belief at a conscious level, then... It, the change maybe impacts that much of your perception and awareness and as a result of that, your life. When you make changes at a deeper level, at a subconscious level or an emotional level, um, oftentimes everything you look at looks differently. And so the transformation is much bigger. Does that make sense? Unfortunately, you can't get there until you've been triggered. <laughs> Now, triggering is an interest. Now, when I say that, what I mean is, is hitting something that you feel, not just something that you think. You can literally feel it in your body. Uh, somebody that I'm close to that was here last week and has a very uh, dynamic spiritual gifting and relationship with the Lord said, uh, every time... <laughs> You would say certain things in that last message, I would feel punched in the stomach. <laughs> and I'm like, that's good. Because <laughs> it's hitting those deep level uh, beliefs now and bringing them into consciousness. Now here's, here's where it gets important that you hear me. If you don't hear anything else, hear this. I'm not trying to convince anyone to think the way that I'm thinking when I'm triggering, what I'm trying to get you to do is bring into your consciousness beliefs that you didn't know that you had, that you did not consciously choose to have because they were programmed into you by the culture you were raised in. And then look at the information and make a conscious choice. If you want to continue to believe the way you've always believed, you're doing it with, awake, being, with an awakened and aware consciousness rather than just following unconscious programming. So that's the purpose. Are you tracking with me? I had somebody comment on one of my YouTube videos. They said, uh, it was the one I did on Cain. They said, Aaron, this is totally unconvincing, and this sounds like complete projection to me. In other words, you're just making the text mean something that you want it to mean. And then, I don't know, went on... <laughs> I don't remember the rest of it. And I simply replied, you're exactly right. Uh, all perception to some level is projection because we all have to make meaning out of what we're perceiving. 
And that meaning comes from us. So what I try to do is share with people what the symbols inside the scriptural texts mean to me based on where I'm at in my level of conscious evolution and spiritual journey. So I'm going to be projecting, or let me do it this way. What I think scripture is supposed to do is draw out of you (laughs) what's within you. And then you give meaning, <clears throat> you give meaning to it. <clears throat> Excuse me, based on where you're at. Does that make sense? And so my thought is, if I can share what I'm seeing, <clears throat> and I'm going to do it passionately because I feel it, <laughs> but if I can share what I'm seeing and then it, it helps people, uh, great. If it doesn't, it doesn't bother me. I'm not, I'm not out to convince anybody of anything. Does that make sense? All right. So having said that, (laughs) what we've been talking about is we've been talking about the archetype of Lucifer. From Isaiah 14, I'm just going to read it quickly. Gosh, sorry. I don't know why I'm... Give me one second. Isaiah 14, verse 12, How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Now, Most people in our culture, when they hear the word Lucifer, they think it's a proper name for the devil. They've merged the word Lucifer, which is a Latin word, with the New Testament concept of Satan and the devil. And this passage, as we'll see in a minute, has been used um, to explain this sort of angelic rebellion that supposedly happened uh, with this being who was named Lucifer, who was the chief archangel and whatever, and he tried to rebel against God and <clears throat> was cast out of heaven and became the devil. I've spent three weeks going over this to show you that's not the case, that it's actually a prophecy about the king of Babylon. Um, so you can go back and look at those if you want to. I don't want to keep relaying that ground. But regardless, Lucifer as a uh, archetype exists, for the most part, within American and, for the most part, Western consciousness. He's an archetype of rebellion against God. Now, some people uh, think he's a literal being <laughs> uh, and, and take these passages and take what the church has taught for uh, centuries and incorporate it into their cosmology or their reality, their map of reality, their model of reality. And so what I'm endeavoring to do is take a different look at Lucifer as something that's positive rather than something that's negative. But in order to do that, you have to undo all the negative baggage that Lucifer carries. So <laughs> Lucifer is a Latin term. Everybody say with me, Latin. Right. It's not English, it's, it's not Hebrew, it's not Greek, it's Latin. Now, in the Hebrew, the word here that is translated in our Bible as O Lucifer is the word for Venus, the planet Venus. And 
Isaiah is borrowing from a common motif. See, one of the things I think we don't appreciate is how <clears throat> how ancient worlds functioned when it came to astronomy or the stars and the constellations and how they functioned when it came to their understanding of forces that were outside of themselves and how they understood those things as being gods or entities or personalities in and of themselves. We're so far removed from that, right? Now, if you think about it, we have all kinds of things to keep us entertained at night. (laughs) But I figure ancient people, they didn't have Netflix, they didn't have smartphones, they didn't have movies to go to. So what did they do? They studied the stars, right? And so Venus, as we know, is the brightest star in the sky uh, during a certain time of the year, and it appears at dusk and at dawn. So it's both the morning star and the evening star. Now, a lot of ancient cultures did not realize that the morning star and the evening star were the same star. But the belief was, in watching the stars, that Venus was the brightest star, right? Because it competed with the sun. It was also the star that made all the, that, that ushered out all the other stars. So in other words, its job was to tell everybody it's time to leave, and then would proclaim the bringing of the dawn, right? But then they would watch in the sky, and as the earth would revolve around the sun, and and Venus would, you know, all the movements within the solar system, Venus would eventually fall out of sight and disappear. So they developed these stories to try to comprehend and understand this, and a lot of the stories that they had were that there would be the chief god represented by the sun, and then there would be this other god that was the brightest of the gods that would try to rebel and take the sun's place, but wasn't powerful enough to take the sun's place, and then was cast out. So Isaiah is using that motif from the stars to discuss what happened to Babylon and the king of Babylon. He does not have in his mind at all some angelic rebellion. So then we have to ask ourselves, where did that come from? The first reference to this passage being about the devil comes from a church father named Tertullian, who was not a very nice guy, I might add. And Tertullian is writing uh, almost 200 years after the time of Christ and the first Christians. And here's the interesting thing. This is really fascinating if you study it out. Tertullian did not think that Lucifer was the proper name of the devil. He was simply using the same motif to discuss the fall of the angels. Now what's really fascinating is if you study the writings of church history... Nobody for 1,500 years equated Lucifer as a being with Satan as a being. It was just a principle of rebellion that they would apply to this idea of the devil and Satan and all of that. So in the first English translation, it's not translated Lucifer. It's translated son of the morning in the Geneva 1500 translation. Now, the Latin translation came before the English translation, right? So the name of Venus is Lucifer in the Latin. I'm going to come back to that. I just want to throw that out there. Even when Milton's writing Paradise Lost, he's not using Lucifer in the same way. It's really not until the 19th century that this whole idea became more and more prominent about 
Lucifer being this entity that rebelled and having these all these negative connotations. That's fascinating to me. Now, the reason this is important is because Lucifer, in the Latin translation from the Greek, is referenced to Christ. We looked at it before Revelation 22. We better do it again because we're reprogramming, right? I thought I should title this message. No, never mind. Because <laughs> you'll get too triggered. <laughs> Somebody will. <laughs> you guys can help me think of a title. Um, verse 16 uh, of Revelation 22, the last thing that Jesus says about himself, the last statement he makes about himself, he says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things. In the churches, I am the root and offspring of David, the bright and morning star. In the Greek, the word for the morning star that's used in Isaiah 14, and the Greek that's used for the morning star in Revelation 22 here is the same exact Greek word. And it's phosphorus. Not Venus, phosphorus. Phosphorus was a divine human in the sense that his father was uh, a deity, and his mother was a human being. <laughs> and he was the torch bearer or the light bearer or the bringer of the dawn. And was equated to the planet that we now call Venus. But in ancient Greek culture it wasn't called Venus, it was called Phosphorus. So Phosphorus was a male who brought light, who brought the bringing of a new day, who brought... Uh, <laughs> had very positive connotations. The darkness is over. The day has now come. Are you breathing? So Jesus actually refers to himself as phosphorus. Now, you do understand that if you read through the scriptures, Matthew, John specifically come to mind, it talks about how the Old Testament prophecies are fulfilled in the person of Christ. And I remember when I was young, like when I was 18, 19 years old, and I'm trying to figure this stuff out and be intellectually honest with myself, raised in a Christian home, struggling with my faith, and came across uh, some apologetics, meaning um, reasons to believe, that kind of thing. And there's this argument that was postulated that there were, I don't remember how many they said, something like 46 or 50 some prophecies in the Old Testament about Christ that were written before the time of Christ, that we can prove were written before the time of Christ, that were fulfilled in the person of Jesus. And then somebody did this statistical analysis, what would be the odds that all of these prophecies would be fulfilled in one person? And they came up with this statistical probability that said if you that the probability of one person fulfilling all the Old Testament prophecies would be like filling the state of Texas with silver dollars a foot deep, the entire state, marking one coin, <laughs> dropping you anywhere, you pick wherever you want to go in Texas, and then you reach down and pick up a coin, and you find that coin, that's the same statistical probability. Now that's pretty convincing, isn't it? So that, well, case closed, right? In my finite thinking. Here's the problem with that argument. Most of the prophecies in the Old Testament that Jesus fulfilled, you would never read and ever come up with 
anything remotely close to the life of Jesus of Nazareth. Because what the writers of the New Testament did was they didn't go to the Scriptures and find Christ. They started with Christ. They started following this person, Jesus. He's raised from the dead. At least that's what they believed as their writing, correct? So they went, and they were Jewish. So they went back to the Jewish Scriptures and made the Jewish Scriptures fit what happened with Christ. It's quite different to look at something, the future, in terms of prophecy ahead of time and get it right. It's totally different to take an event after the fact and twist and make it fit. Which blows up the whole statistical argument. Here's an example. In John's Gospel, when Jesus is on the cross, it says that the, the, um, the uh, soldiers would go and break the legs of the people who were being crucified so that they would suffocate, basically is what would happen to them. But when they got to Jesus, he was already dead, so they didn't break his legs. That it might be fulfilled what was written, that this prophecy might be fulfilled, none of his legs shall be broken. So you ask yourself, where is that in Scripture? Well, the, you find it. <laughs> In the Exodus with the Passover lamb. So it's, an, it's a ceremonial instruction. When you kill the Passover lamb to eat it, make sure you don't break any of its bones. That none of its bones be broken, it says. Talking about the Passover lamb. And John just takes that, rips that out of context and says, this applies to Jesus dying on the cross. Are, are you tracking with me? So what I'd like to suggest to you is that if the idea that Lucifer was an evil being did not exist for the vast majority of church history, and definitely was not, we don't have reference to it before the second century, 200 years after that. And the book of Revelation at the latest dating is being written towards the end of the first century. That if Jesus is saying that he is phosphorus, that he is in the Latin Lucifer, Is it possible then, using the same exact method of interpretation, to track this back and say, actually what's being talked about in Isaiah 14 is not the fall of a rebellious angel, but actually the person of Christ? Let me give you an example. One of the prophecies that's fulfilled, John, same writer, well, not really, Never mind about that. But John in the Gospel of John says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So that tracks back to the Passover Lamb, tracks back to maybe when Isaac, when Abraham's offering Isaac, right? So when Jesus says he's Lucifer, where's that going to track back to? Isaiah 14. So what did he say he was going to do? He said he was going to ascend above the clouds, above the stars, sit on the congregation on the farthest sides of the north, and be like the Most High, right? Read the book of Ephesians. I'm not going to take time to do it because I've already done this. I'm just laying more foundation, right? Ephesians chapter 1 says that Christ ascended into the heavens and sat down at the right hand of God far above all the rest of the stars, principalities, powers, might, dominion, every name that can be named. 
Hebrews says that the Son is the exact representation of the Father, so that He is like the Most High. Everything that was in the heart of the King of Babylon, Jesus fulfilled according to the Scriptures as a human being. So that what I'd like to suggest to you, so what does this mean to us, other than just historical information? First thing, I hope it sets you free from this irrational fear that there is this cosmic conspiracy by the powers of darkness to take you to hell. <laughs> Number one. Number two, I hope it opens you up to the possibility that there are other things that you have not experienced, and just because you have not experienced it, and just because the church said it's of the devil, does not make it so. Because the idea that Lucifer is a fallen angel is an Christian urban legend. But the other thing is, I think there is something here for us that is a pattern for our own, now watch this, self-exaltation that is not contrary to the pattern of Christ, but actually conforms to the pattern of Christ. I'm going to say that again. I think there is something here. I think there is something very powerful here for our own self-ascension and self-exaltation that is not contrary to the pattern of Christ, but actually conforms to the pattern of the morning star, who is Christ. Are you breathing? I'm going to do one more scripture and then I'm going to bring it around. Second Peter, chapter 2, bring it down to where you live, right? Sorry, Second Peter, chapter 1, verse 19. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. In the Latin, in the Greek, it says, until phosphorus rises in your hearts. In the Latin, it actually says, until Lucifer rises in your hearts. That means that Christians who were able to read and read the text for centuries before the King James translation, and please understand that King James was, was, was paranoid about witches. He was paranoid about demons. Um, he, he, he was paranoid about evil, and, and so he authorized a translation, right? So when they translate it, they translate Isaiah 14 as Lucifer, but they don't dare translate Second Peter as Lucifer because otherwise Christians would be being told in the New Testament Scriptures to let Lucifer, Phosphorus, the morning star, the torchbearer, the light bringer, to rise in their hearts. So what does this mean? So if we go back to I will ascend, the, 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 the key here, the key here is that 
the king of Babylon, he said in his heart, I will ascend. I will exalt myself. I will sit in the farthest, in, in the mount of the congregation. I will sit on the farthest sides of the north. I will be like the most high. In other words, the thrust of all of it is a self will that is pushing, watch this, that is pushing against everything that is restricting the manifestation of the light of the true and the highest and the best self. That's why in the last three messages I showed you that, that, so in our culture, Lucifer is a archetype of the adversary who overthrows But for the, if you read the gospel stories, Jesus was the adversary to the entire religious political system. It's through a demon that he casts out demons. (laughs) His family would try to give him orders and he'd say, no, my time hasn't come yet. His family didn't believe him, but it didn't stop him from believing in himself. The religious system didn't believe him and wanted to kill him, but it didn't prevent him from declaring who he was. So here's the point. In the story, Jesus the man lives the most authentic... Let me put it this way. He consistently lives true to his highest self. He consistently lives true to his own intuition and his own leading. Even to the point of death. He holds to the confession of who he is. Even to the point of death. Because his, and in that sense, his star, his light was shining. Jesus could say, I am the light of the world. But then turn around and tell you, you are the light of the world. And then say, don't let your light be hidden. And and what I like to suggest to you is that this concept of the morning star, of Venus, of phosphorus, of the torchbearer, of the light bearer, of, of Lucifer rising in the heart is a biblical concept that is set forth for us so that we can tap into an energy and a power within us. Because notice what he says, that the day star arises. What was it that Lucifer wanted to do in verse 14? He wanted to arise. And so, any power brokers, be they religious, be they political, be they power brokers in the family, be they power brokers in commerce, they don't want you to arise, they want you to be subjugated. They want you to be subservient. And so we are programmed in our culture to think that self-exaltation is wrong and bad and evil. We are programmed in our culture to think that if I think well of myself, I am being haughty and prideful and egotistical and braggadocious. And what I would like to suggest to you is that until you embrace yourself, until you love yourself, until you trust yourself, until you embrace your own light from within you, you can make no progress. And you're... You're playing into the hands of the oppressor. You're playing into the hands of the slave master. Remember, the Bible is written by the oppressed. 
That's why it cracks me up to see, you know, politicians and power mongers using the Bible. <laughs> using the Bible to say somehow we're the chosen nation or whatever because in the Bible the chosen people are always the oppressed people and the one time that Israel, the, 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 the history and the years that you read about when Israel is not the oppressed people, they're the head and not the tail and whatever else, it is a constant critique on the evil of the empire And what I would like to suggest to you is that there is something inside you, that you have a light, you have a divine light. You have a divine light. You have, you have a course. You are a star in the sky. You have a course that is uniquely yours. You have a pattern that is uniquely yours. You have an authentic self that is uniquely yours. And that is what the power of the resurrection is. For you to break off. That, that's what the freedom of the gospel is. For you to break off every bondage, every limiting belief, to become liberated in your highest and most the authentic self so that that self can shine brightly so that you become a light bearer and a torch bearer and a, and a, and a declarer of a new dawn. And without the I will of self, with it, it takes effort, it takes strength, it takes courage, it takes bravery. And it takes an incredibly strong will that says, I am going to push and arise and ascend. And that we're programmed to think that's exactly what we're not supposed to do. And that's the problem with religion. And so, so what I want to suggest to you is that I could quote several scriptures to you. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, we have not been given the spirit of subjection to slavery again. But we have been given the spirit of adoption. (laughs) We have been given the spirit of sonship. And in the ancient culture, sonship meant equality and heirs. It meant to be able to say like Jesus, I and my Father are one. And understand that if God put light in you, He doesn't want all the light to be the same. I'm telling you that perhaps things are the exact opposite of how we've believed. That perhaps that which we thought was bringing us liberation was bringing us into bondage, and that which we thought would bring us into bondage is the exact thing that can bring us into liberation. Are you bringing that? What? Listen to some some things about the history of this thing we call the church. Let, let's just think about it for a minute. Now, when I'm talking about the church, I'm talking about, it's hard to describe. I'm talking about a thought form, a collective thought form that takes on its own power and its own energy, that then enslaves the people that are subjected to it. I'm not talking about the people inside of the institution. I'm not even talking about the institution itself. I'm talking about a real power that is enslaving to anyone who will bow the knee to it. Here's what I mean by that. So, how many of you have heard of the Jesuits? So the Jesuits started out as, um, what were they? The Society of Jesus, I think. And their goal was to restore the pure teachings of Jesus to the church. Their goal was reformation. 
And the moment they began to try to reform, (laughs) that meant they were pushing against something. In other words, every reformation happened because somebody looked at at the status quo and said, I will ascend above it. I will ascend above it. I have light that needs to ascend above this thought form, that needs to ascend above this belief, that needs to ascend above these authorities, that needs to ascend above this institution in order for a new day to come for humanity. And the moment someone dares to do that, the war is on. So that the Jesuits were not successful. They towed the line and became a arm of the Roman Catholic Church, so much so that their their motto became this. If what I myself see as white, I will believe it to be black if the church co-wills it. Can I say that again? If I myself see something to be white, I will believe it to be black if the church co-wills it. In other words, I will compromise my own integrity, my own insight, my own expression, my own light, and I will subjugate it to the opinions of the collective other human beings. And if you don't, and, and, and why we feel this need to, to, to pledge allegiance, now I'm speaking as a, as a reform, as a reforming Fundamentalist here. Christian. (laughs) Why we feel a need to pledge an allegiance to an orthodoxy that is responsible for atrocities and genocides and wars and murders is beyond me. Why we can't look at this system and say it is absolutely corrupt to the core is beyond me. Let me give you an example. If, you, if, you're a, if you're a Roman Catholic person and you're a male and you want to dedicate your life in service to God, then you have to subjugate your sexuality to the church. Not because necessarily you think sexuality is a bad thing or marriage is a bad thing or whatever, but because the church thinks it's a bad thing. And so the moment you take your vows, you have subjugated to a form of slavery and become a mouthpiece for the institution. And, 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 and a participant in enslaving others. And so what happens? Because they suppress their white, they suppress their light, what happens? It, it eventually erupts in scandals and, 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 and sexual violence and sexual perpetration and pedophilia and whatever else. All because somebody said, I will subject myself to the opinion of this institution. How many of us that were raised in Pentecost or Baptist circles or whatever, you were taught to, about this, this whole thing about spiritual authority and how horrible rebellion is and how horrible, you know, all this stuff is. And so people come in and they, and they think the standard is submission and, and this whole idea of submitting our will. I'd like to suggest to you that if we look at Jesus through the lens of the morning star, through the lens of Isaiah 14, through the lens of Second Peter chapter 1, through the lens of Revelation 22, that we begin to see that Jesus was not about subjugating His will. He was about the expression of His will. 
For example, we, the classic text there is in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus says, Father, not my will, but your will be done, right? When, before he's going to go and die on the cross. Yet, prior to that, every time Jesus would talk about his death and resurrection, he would say, I am going into Jerusalem. I will be handed over. I will be killed, and on the third day I will rise from the dead. I will. Watch this. I will be handed over, and on the third day I will be raised from the dead. The audacity of self-exaltation. The audacity of self-will. The audacity of self-love. Are you breathing? (laughs) In John's Gospel, he says, No one takes my life from me. I lay my life down and I will take it back up. (laughs) The pushing of a strong will that says even death won't conquer me. You see it? So then what's this issue in the Garden of Gethsemane? Here's what I'd like to suggest to you. That more, that very, very often we do not express our true will because we are subjugated by thoughts and beliefs and ideas that are given to us from our culture, from our experience, from religious authorities, parental authorities, teachers, politicians, whatever the case may be. Our friends, our need for social acceptance. So we can't express our true self because our need for social acceptance is so high. So we subjugate our true will to the will of another. And what I would like to suggest to you is that when Jesus is wrestling in the garden, He's operating at those lower levels of His consciousness, fighting with those things that would subjugate His highest will, which was to go lay down His life and be raised up. And then when He finally, because He and the Father were One, when he finally said, Father, not my will, but thine be done. He's actually saying, not my will, but mine. (sighs) Not my will, but mine be done. So that this day star rising in your heart is a process of liberation where the light begins to arise in the darkness. When you're walking in the darkness, you're walking by social programming. Somebody else told you what to believe. Somebody else told you how to behave. Somebody else told you how to act. Somebody else told you what the rules were. Somebody else told you what was good and evil. And then you spend your life trying to be a good person. A good person according to what? And so all of us experience these sort of psychic, and I'm using that for psychological energy, we, we experience these sort of psychic conflicts inside ourselves between who we, who we want to be, who maybe we are in authenticity, and who we feel like we should be. Am I talking to anybody in here? <laughs> Do you get it? And, and as long as you just subjugate and you're a good little soldier and you're a good little boy and you're a good little girl and you're a good little citizen and, and you do, and you do all this, this stuff, then you're just walking in the dark, baby. You're just walking according to the course of the power of the age. You're conformed to the pattern of this world. 
And when your own light, when, when, the, when the day begins to dawn, that's, that's a dawning of consciousness. If it's happening in your heart, dare I say the Bible teaches enlightenment, that the, that the, the day star would rise in your heart, that you would become conscious, that consciousness would arise within you. Then what begins to happen? I begin to be liberated because I begin to examine my own thinking and my own ego. I begin to examine the rules and the regulations. I begin to examine the beliefs and the self-limitations. And there's something inside me. I, I'm not talking about just 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 some kind of power to, I don't know, get a new job or a new car or heal your body or something like that. I'm talking about something that is so powerful that it leads to absolute self-transformation. That leads to absolute self-liberation. That, that you realize that there is, that there is a deific light. There's, there's the light of deity inside of you. That, and that light is you. That light is not separate from you. That light is not other than you. And you sit as a God in your own temple. Somebody had a problem with that. As a light bringer and a light bearer in your own temple. But you examine those deeply held beliefs. You examine those unconscious things. Which is why when the will says it's time to ascend, it feels like a descent. Which is why when you say, I'm going to ascend, I'm going to let my light shine, I'm going to do all this stuff, and the next thing you know, you find yourself in the lowest depths of hell. Why? Because you're seeing all the dysfunctional programming and realizing where it all comes from, and sometimes it's too much to take, because you have to go through a complete deconstruction of the person that you fashioned, because the person that you fashioned was not fashioned according to your truest, most authentic self, but fashioned according to the opinions, ideologies, the need to people please, the whatever you were taught that was around you. And most people don't have the strength to make it through that process. It's a crucifixion of sorts that releases the true self, the, the day star, the light bearer, the torch bearer within you. To arise, to resurrect. And let your light shine. So that the spiritual warfare isn't against whatever. Whatever they think is up there. Devil, I rebuke you in the name of Jesus Christ. The real spiritual warfare is to throw off the oppression of that which limits and enslaves you in your own mind based on the programming that you received. And the real Satan is that which opposes. So the question becomes, do I want to be enslaved or do I want to live free? Do I want to be oppressed or am I willing to fight the battle to break through? Because you're going to piss people off. You're going to be misunderstood. You're going to be told that you're wrong. 
You're going to be accused of being a demon, a Luciferian, a devil worshiper, whatever. And the question is, do you have the strength of will to say, regardless, I will ascend. I will take my place. I will go above the stars that have been shining in my life telling me how I'm supposed to be and what course I'm supposed to be on. In other words, are you willing to do the work of real self-examination, telling yourself the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth about yourself? (laughs) Do the work of real self-examination. Be willing to challenge and fight against that which is limiting you. To throw off the yoke of slavery that you've been living under so that the day star may arise in your heart. And not only do you then allow your light to shine, but you become a light bringer, heralding the dawning of a new day for those who are ready to join you on the journey. Close your eyes. If you will. Holy Spirit, we just welcome your presence. Thank you for the fiery power. (laughs) I can't believe I'm going to say this. Thank you for the fiery power of the light of the morning star. I'll say it that way. The light of the morning star that is inside each And every single one of us. Its own unique place and expression in this world. And I, and we tap into that energy right now. We tap into that energy right now to arise, to strengthen our wills, and to help us as we help one another in the journey. Amen. I hope this helped you today. God bless you. Have a great day.